Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1, 9 to 12 this morning. As you're doing that, let me just say that we have in the bulletin that our banquet will be March 1st, um, and before we can, that is our goal, we've submitted some requests at different places to hold the banquet, and we haven't heard back yet, so we jumped the gun a little bit by putting that date, but we're hoping that March 1st does indeed work out. James chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, hear now the word of the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would indeed give us insight into your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds as we receive these truths in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've just begun James, and he has been focusing on trials, more specifically us enduring trials, and more specifically than that, us enduring trials by counting it all joy when we face them. And to do that, we're going to have to recognize that they're there, these trials that come into our life are there in order to help us grow and mature in the faith. And to do that, we're going to have to have a heavenly perspective. And to do that, as we learned last week, we're going to need wisdom. It doesn't come easy. To look at a trial that you're facing, something that you're enduring, it's like a weight on your shoulder and saying, this I can count all joy because I know that the Lord is taking this event and conforming me into the image of his son. And so we need to pray for wisdom to do that. On our text this morning, James actually continues this topic of trials, of facing various trials, dealing with these contrasting circumstances of life. And he does it by way of illustration. If you ask yourself, what does living a heavenly perspective life, a life viewing life through that lens, what does it look like? James is going to help us understand that in these verses. What he does is basically give a for instance. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It flowers, falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, when you look at that or read that, you think, okay, James is off of this topic of trials. He's changed subjects a little, and he's talking about the poor and the rich. But that's not what's happening here. James is actually talking about trials. He's talking about the trial of poverty and the trial of wealth. Now, all of us would probably like the trial of wealth, But if we had that perspective, that would be a wrong perspective. See, James wants us to see that both poverty and wealth, and he wants us to see them for what they are. 
and they're actually a means to help us grow spiritually. He wants us to view the trial of poverty and wealth from God's perspective. And to do that, he presents for us the fact that we as believers are under a trial. Now, James could have given a different example other than wealth and poverty. We all fall into one category or the other, sometimes more, sometimes less of the other. But he could have given other illustrations. He could have said loneliness and companionship. They both bring a trial. He could have contrasted a person who experiences the loss of a spouse with a person who has a long, happy marriage. He could have contrasted unemployment as opposed to someone who has fulfilling work a disappointment with fulfilled dreams. Any of these would have done, but that's not what he chose. He chose, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this one of plenty and lack. And he says that these things, wealth and poverty, they reveal our true attitude, how we respond to them. It actually reveals if we're truly wise and if we have the right perspective when we're dealing with them. And so I want to walk through this illustration, noting four things. Uh, first, that the, the, the present danger that is there, there's the same danger between poverty and wealth. It requires the same response, both poverty and wealth. And then if you do respond correctly, the results are the same reward and then they demand the same focus. And so we're going to look at both poverty and wealth, the same danger, same response, same reward, same focus. Thanks, whichever commentary I got that from. Well, first, both present, they both present the same danger. The trial of both, the poor and the rich, is that they may put their security, put their hope, put all their trust in material possessions. And that's true of both the poor and the rich. The poor person may get so caught up in his low position and he may start thinking, the only way I can get out of this, the only way that I can have a life worth meaning is if I get more money, if I can get out of my poverty. Nothing wrong with trying to get out of your poverty, but he puts all his focus there. And because he's in his poverty, he could say, you know what, God, why aren't you helping me? And he curses God. That's what Job's wife did. They went from riches to nothing. They lost it all. And she said, curse God and die. And so that's the poor person. On the other hand, the rich person could look at a situation and become so satisfied with the gift that he forgets the giver, as the saying goes. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. We read about it in Hosea. I cared for you in the desert, God says. I, uh, in the land of burning heat, when I fed them, they were satisfied when they were satisfied, they became proud, and they forgot me. And so the rich person is tempted to fixate on his riches and to boast in his success, to become proud, and to be content in that, uh, his material possessions and his material wealth. In fact, like the poor person, he's tempted to think life can only get better if I get more. The more I have, the better life is. He's kind of like the rich fool in Jesus' parable. Remember, he tears down his barns and builds bigger ones so that he can accumulate more. Now, the rich who are foolish think happiness and security are found in riches. And so the temptation here is the same. It's to focus on the perishable in place of the permanent. 
Remember Jesus' warning, watch out. He says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, Luke 12, 15. And James here explains why that's true. He explains why satisfaction, joy, and hope cannot be found in worldly possessions. Look at verses 10 and 11. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. See, the poor man should look at the rich man and see that their possessions perish. And the rich man should recognize that himself. Beloved, until you realize that until you see material possessions from that perspective, from that biblical perspective, you'll miss out on all, on true blessing. You have to see that there's a trial in both poverty and riches. And, and, and so you will fail to respond correctly in a godlike manner if you don't do that. And that's the first point. Both Poverty and riches present the same danger that we can get caught up in the things of this world and their trials for the believer. Second, both the poor and the rich require the same response then. They should indeed boast. They are to glory. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast, or, or the word there is glory, in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. You notice that they both respond, they both glory, they both boast, but they boast in different things. The lowly brother, the brother of humble circumstances, must set his sights to the exalted position he now enjoys in Christ. He may be poor in this world, he may be poor with the things of this world, but he must, not, but he must look beyond this world. He, he has to look beyond it and remember who he is in Christ. He needs to boast in his new identity. Scripture teaches he is blessed with every spiritual blessing. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're blessed, that poor soul who's poor. Maybe that, that's what you're thinking of yourself, where you're blessed if you know Christ with every spiritual blessing. That's what Ephesians 1 says. You, you're a new creation, says 2 Corinthians 5. In, in fact, Colossians 3 says you've been raised to the heavenly realms and are seated with Christ. I could go on and on with the promises and the blessings of being united to Jesus. One writer said, let the poor man remember that he is a prince and glory in it. He is a prince on his way to his kingdom, traveling by rough roads, enduring many hardships, suffering from hunger, cold, weariness, and the people among whom he travels may not know anything about his greatness, but he knows because he belongs to Christ, so let him glory in his highest state. That's the truth for the poor believer. And so the lowly are to boast in their high position in Christ. And so the rich, they are to boast in their low position, in their humiliation. Notice what it says. The rich Christian must realize he can take no pride in, in his social position, in all his wealth, his worldly status. He, he can't take pride in that. He, he, he can fade away at any moment. He could be gone, says verse one, uh, verse 11. Excuse me. The rich person must realize he's no better than any other man. If you're a rich person here today, you're not 
better because you have riches. You are a sinner like everyone else. If you're going to boast, boast in God, not in your wealth. Nothing wrong with wealth, but boast in God. Paul said this, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's, a, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4. See, James is giving us a paradox that, that kind of levels the playing field, right? The word here for humiliation is the same word used of the poor man when it says lowly brother. See, James is saying the poor are rich and the rich are poor. That's the godly perspective. The cross of Christ lifts up the poor and it humbles the proud. And it makes us all on the same playing field, as it were. And so we're on the same level. And so understand, both the poor and the rich, the lowly and the exalted, are deserving of God's wrath. Both are dependent on God's mercy. Both are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. That's the perspective. That's how godly wisdom is applied here. Unlike the world that does what? It it glories in the rich and the famous and shuns the poor. We in the church must recognize that God is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality, no favoritism. And we're going to get to that in James 2 when we, when we look at that passage. But for now, I want you to see that no matter which side you consider yourself, rich or poor, and as you know, in America, we can probably all consider ourselves rich in some ways, but no matter where you stand on that equation there, your trial it should be the same. You should boast in God that you belong to God, that you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And see, all who believe, poor and rich, blue collar and white collar, educated or uneducated, we can all boast in the fact that God has opened up our eyes to see the vanity of worldly wealth, to see the vanity of worldly status. We can boast in the fact that God has shown us the essence of true happiness and honor, which is what? It's knowing God. We can boast in the fact that God has given us an eternal reward that will never be taken away. And so poor and rich, we can boast together. And that leads to our third point. Both the poor and the rich, if they respond to their trial correctly, it results in the same reward. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, James now has given us another motivation for enduring those trials that we don't like. He tells us that if you remain steadfast in the trial that you're facing, you will be blessed. The word blessed usually has that basic meaning of happiness, but, it, but James means something much more profound than just mere happiness, mere fleeting pleasure. Understand, James, like Jesus before him in the Beatitudes, say in Matthew chapter 5, is talking about a joy that comes from God himself. It's an inner joy. 
that we have. A joy that is not dependent on what? Our circumstance, being poor or rich. It's a blessedness that's not the result or the, from the absence of a trial. In the midst of the trial, you can have this joy. That's what he's talking about here. It's a joy that is not available to the average person, to be honest. It's only something a Christian can experience. And so if you're an unbeliever here, you long for this joy. You desire this joy. You're looking for it, though, in the wrong places. Every human desires joy like this. But, but if we try to find it anywhere but in Christ, it won't be found. God himself has shut the unbeliever from having such a blessing anywhere but in him. If you're unsure about that, go back over the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what it's all about. You will not find this joy, this inner joy from material possessions. You will not find it in the fleeting pleasures of this world. It's found in Christ alone. And so only those who know Jesus Christ, only those who have access to the throne of God Almighty in Christ can pray for the wisdom that is needed to view trials this way. Only those who remain steadfast in the midst of these earthly trials that we endure and view them are able to view them from a heavenly perspective. They and they alone can have this blessedness that is promised to us. They can experience, you, if you're a believer, can experience this inner joy. The bottom line is this, rich or poor, uneducated or not, only the Christian is truly blessed. That's what James is getting at. Now understand, when James says only those who remain steadfast are blessed, he's not saying you will never stumble or fall. I was trying to be steadfast, I failed, now I can't have this. That's not the point. The steadfast person is the one who's enduring the trial and then stumbles, maybe gets caught up in the things of this world, but he he repents of that, turns and presses on. That's what it means to remain steadfast. And it's the steadfast person who's blessed. And James tells us why this person is blessed. Look at verse 12. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. If you are steadfast in the midst of your trials in this world, you're blessed because you receive a reward. You're blessed because you are a victorious person. You're blessed because you're going to receive the crown of life. This is a great picture. The expression is used only in Revelation 2.10. And in Revelation 2.10, the context is the same, persevering under trial. And this is what it says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's where it's used. In Greek cities, crowned, what they would do is crown their heroes and honor them and reward them. The picture here is of a victorious runner approaching the judge's stand where the laurel wreath would be put on their head and they would be crowned the victory. It's kind of like what? The Olympics, when they win the gold medal, they stand up on the pedestal, they get the gold medal. And so the crown here signifies glory, it signifies honor, and especially it signifies victory, victory in Christ. 
And what is beautiful about this is that there isn't just one winner, like at the Olympics, the gold medalists. Uh, This crown is for all who endure, all. Every persevering Christian walks up to the throne of the great judge, and they receive the crown of life. Oh, but I, I wasn't as successful as Billy Graham. Not relevant. You endure. I, I didn't write any great books. Not relevant. I wasn't a preacher. Not relevant. It, do you endure under trial and you stand with Christ? You receive the crown. That is the picture James is painting. Now, this crown in the Bible is similar to the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy. It's similar to the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. It's not a literal crown. It's not a literal crown, say, consisting of the substance of righteousness or the substance of glory, in our case, the substance of life. Rather, to receive these crowns or the crown of life is to receive righteousness. It's to receive glory. It's to receive life itself. All who finish the race receive the reward. All those who pass the test of steadfastness, all, according to verse 12, who love him. Look again at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Those who love him. Did you not expect James to say God has promised to those who persevere or to all who obey or all who believe will receive the crown? But rather, he says, all who love him receive the crown of life. Why? Why does he choose love? Well, I think it's, it's because love for Christ keeps us from loving the world. That's what he was talking about. Uh, and, and, and clinging to those possessions. If you love for Christ, will motivate you to persevere under trial. And so by loving Jesus, knowing that you're enduring this for his name's sake or he's allowing it, allows you to endure. Those who love him will persevere. One writer said the prime source of our endurance is not a grim determination to do our duty and claim our reward. It, it's out of love for God. That's our prime motivator. See, it's much easier to persevere when you remember that Jesus wore the crown of thorns out of love for you so that you can wear the crown of life. It's out of love for him. He died so that you can have life. Love for Christ is our motivator. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Notice the order. It's out of love for him you keep his commands. Now, there's a biblical illustration of this, and it's in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 7. It has to do with the stoning of Stephen, uh, um, our church's namesake. He perseveres to the end, waiting on Jesus to receive his crown, his glory. Remember, he's being persecuted. He preached the gospel. They didn't like it. And then we read, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, they stoned him to death, literally stoned him to death. And this is how he ends his life with these words. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. See, Stephen persevered. He withstood the trial. He passed the endurance test, and he received the welcome of Jesus into literal eternal life. He received the crown. Well, the irony of all this, as one commentator points out, is that the name Stephen comes from the Greek word Stephanus, which means victory wreath, which means crown, which is the word we have here in James for crown. Stephen's love for Christ allowed him to remain steadfast in the midst of people throwing stones at him, and what he was able to do by being enduring that was to receive his namesake, as it were, to receive the crown of life. And I want you to notice, and this is the important point for us, what Stephen does in the midst of this trial, how he's enduring it, how he's able to get through it. He looks to heaven. Full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He literally saw him there. We don't get that privilege, but he literally saw him there. He was enduring this earthly trial of stoning by looking to his heavenly home. He was looking beyond the trial, and he was looking to Jesus. And that leads to our fourth point. The trials of the poor and the rich demands the same focus. It presents the same danger, the same response, and if it's responded correctly, we receive the reward, and now forth, the same focus. Stephen illustrates it for us. The focus is Jesus. Now, anyone, and I don't think there's many people here who have traveled with me, know that you don't want to do it again a second time. Yeah, particularly when I have to fly, I don't like to fly. I'm not afraid of flying, I just don't like to fly. I don't like to leave my family behind in any trip, let alone going to the, uh, a mall or anywhere. I don't want to leave them behind. They can tell you how I'm not the most content traveler. And don't get me wrong, once I'm there, I enjoy myself. But once I'm there, I start wanting to go home. I start longing for home. I could do a vacation for 12 days, and on the ninth day, I'm saying, maybe we should just, you know, go home. Um, what keeps me from being consumed, though, when I'm on a trip, particularly when I'm alone, by this attitude that I have is knowing that I'll be home soon enough. It's going to happen. And maybe I wanted it earlier, but it's going to happen. That, the, the trial of travel will not last forever. I'm going to go home. I've been looking forward to the day I'll be home. I look forward to sleeping in my own bed. I, I look forward to showering in my own shower and so on and so forth, eating my own meals. But really, when you think about it, it's not being home in and of itself. It, it signifies something else, doesn't it? It signifies being home with my family, being home with my wife, being home with my girls. See, I, I actually long and love for home because I long and love for Christy. I long and love for my daughters. That's what James is saying here. When you get to your eternal home in heaven, the greatest thing about it is that Jesus is there. Jesus is there. See, to receive the crown of life is to stand forever in a loving relationship with the King of Kings. Kings. 
It's not only the gift of eternal life that will cause you to endure. It's knowing the giver of that gift. It's not the quest for some crown that's going to cause you to endure. It's what the crown represents. Eternal communion with your Savior and Lord and King Jesus. It's not heaven per se. It's who will be there to greet you. See, if you want to endure trials and you must love and you must long for Christ, you must know Jesus. You must submit yourself to him. You must focus on Christ. See, trials strengthen your love for Christ. And because they do, if you love him, you'll welcome them and be able to count them all joy. Because there is nothing more important in this world, in this life, than your relationship with Jesus. And a person who believes that, well, they keep their focus on Christ. Now, I believe actually a perfect summary of this is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. This is what we read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it is, looking to Jesus or fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and and despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now notice what the passage says. Lay aside every sin that clings. In our context, what's the sin? In our context of James, it's it's loving and clinging to the things of this world. It's the sin of coveting. Lay it aside. And then run with endurance the race. How? Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him. In fact, follow his example. Because for the joy set before him, he endured the trial he had to go through. Calvin said, we shall never be fit for the service of God if we look not beyond this fleeting life. However, when any person has fixed his eyes on God, his heart will be invincible and utterly incapable of being moved. And so that's the kind of resolve we need to pray for. We need to walk in Jesus' shoes. He he, he didn't grow weary knowing that he was going to be seated at the right hand of God. He knew that there was a joy set before him, so he endured the trial. We need to do the same. And we need wisdom to do it. And so pray for wisdom to view your trials from the perspective of eternity. That's the idea. That's what's being said. And that's the lesson from the poor and the rich. Presents the same danger, same response, same reward if we respond correctly, and they both demand the same focus. Well, I'd like to close by asking you a sobering question. I stole this listening to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson on this text, and he just asked it, simple question, when you die, how will your obituary read? How will your obituary read? How will those who know you best view your life? Will they say, oh boy, he had a passion for living. It's consumed with a a worldly focus. 
Will that be said? See, if James has taught you anything, he has taught you this. What a poor, poor person you are, if that is all you can say at the end of your life, is that you gained, let's just say, the whole world. If that's what you gain. To accumulate wealth and fun and adventure. And amassing more wealth if you have it. Doing that is short-sighted indeed. So how will your obituary read? See, James is calling us to live our life in such a way that at the end, people will say of you, and, and I've done some funerals here, and I could say that uh, of several people, that, that's what would be said of them. Man, they loved Jesus. Oh, they, their focus was on knowing Jesus. Their, their passion was worshiping Jesus. Oh, what did they do for a living? Well, they had a job, but I'll tell you, one of the main businesses they had was telling others about Jesus. And, and now they wear the crown of life. See, with that eternal focus, when you zero in and fix your eyes on Jesus and what is to come, you'll be able to endure any trial you face with joy. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is for myself and I'm sure for many others to be consumed with gaining the whole world. And yet, Father, we ask, in fact, we we plead with you that you would give us of your Holy Spirit that our greatest desire would be to know Christ, to know him better, to fix our eyes upon Jesus and so that when we face trials, which we will, we can endure them with joy. Christ's name. Amen.